Corinthians chapter 8, 13 verses here, and uh, I want to read all of this, and then we'll ask the Lord to teach us. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything and he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and is the brother who for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Father, we come to hear from you. We come to seek your face. Father, we wish your will. Father, you give it to us here. Father, let this be a part of what moves us. Let this be a part of how we make our decisions. Let this be a part of what you do in our lives. Father, let this be a, a, a tool for sharpening, a tool for Strengthening a tool to your glory. Father, may it be our desire to be the holiest saved sinner that we can possibly be. To you, my King, in Christ's name, amen. Now, I know you've had a couple of weeks without me. So I hope that you were rested well, because I'm back and uh, eager to say the least. I was thinking about a video clip that I've seen of Dr. Olford, and he says that preaching is the fire in his bone, the hop in his step, the giddy-up in his gone. I thought, that's interesting, but I understand what he was saying. So that's where I'm at. 
We're looking at limits on Christian freedom in chapter 8. We're looking at what I would call, how do I decide gray areas in my life? When I am making decisions in my life where the Bible is not specific on how I am to work in this area, how do I... How do I make a decision that brings the glory to God? Um, You know, there are many, many things in the scriptures that are very clear on how I am to respond. Thou shalt not covet. That's pretty clear uh, how I should respond. Um, You know, do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Um, they're, They're not that difficult. Do not marry an unbeliever. That's not hard to, to figure out. Do not forsake the assembly together. Um, da, 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 da. Those are not hard. But there are things in our lives that we must ask ourselves, um, how do I deal with this? How, how do I make a decision on this? Is it wrong to go to a rock concert? Is that a sin? Is it a sin to uh, um, smoke a, a Cuban cigar, any cigar? Is it a sin to smoke? Is it a sin to do, you know, serious things? And, and this text is very clear on it. We look at it and we kind of block it out of our minds because we look at it and we say, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and we say, well, who's doing that? Uh, truth of the matter is, many of us are. And, and I want to review this quickly because we are looking at verses 8 through 13. Verses 1 through 3, we understood and we looked at this, that we all have knowledge. There's not a person in this room who does not have some knowledge. Uh, Not a person in this room who does not have some measure of biblical knowledge. All right, some have more gigabytes of information than others, but for the most part, we all have a basic concept of what the Bible says. But we also learn that knowledge in and of itself is definitely something to attain with, but in and of itself is insufficient. All right? But we learn that without love, it's just noisy. 1 Corinthians 13. It's a clanging gong. It just makes a noise. It's like a cymbal. But love edifies. And I want to touch this again because love by itself without knowledge is tragedy. Because that is emotion. That is experience. And and I'm moving on emotions. And if I do not guard my emotions, when it says guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, okay, my heart is my emotion. My mind is my thinking processes. Uh, And if we do not guard those emotions, we are in trouble. So knowledge without love is useless. Love without knowledge is a tragedy. So to be effective in our holiness before God, it is knowledge that is immersed in love, God's love. All right? Uh, and if anyone loves God, then he is intimate with God. That word knowledge there is that growing intimacy with the Lord. All right? Second thing we've seen in verses 4 through 7, that his idol is nothing. An idol has absolutely no capability of anything. We will look at it, at how demons would honor prayers to idols in chapter 10, but we're not there. The truth of the matter is, if I look at idols today, and listen, you are surrounded by idols. We have American idols. Okay, don't we? Uh, you have 
people who are into the Oscars and the Emmys and all them other things. We have sports idols. But the truth of the matter is, they are nothing. They are absolutely nothing. And, and, and 4 through 7, he lays this out very well. Uh, there's no such thing as an idol in the world. There is only but one God. All right? And, and he, he's very good at, through this text. And However, all men don't have this knowledge. And he, he gives that in verse 7. Some being accustomed to the idol. What that means is they have been so enmeshed in a lifestyle of that idol... That it is part of their being. You really need to understand that the culture in Corinth was very, very religiously based. Any festival, any marriage celebration, the birth of a child, uh, any time you received a new job, if you were going to have a play, uh, if you were going to go, so they didn't go to movies, they would have dramas. Uh, and they would play them out. They were all done in temples. And they would exalt that deity of that temple so their whole life is encapsulated in an idol and so what he's saying is is that younger believer coming to the saving knowledge of jesus christ when he came in he's still fighting that and it scares him it scares him he has a fear of that he knows he's been saved from that but that gives him a fear i know that in my own life um most of you know my background, uh, the, the culture that I came out of, uh, the, the, the lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, that I came out of uh, was uh, is defined in many ways. Uh, but when I came out of that and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, literally woke me up in a hospital bed uh, after three days, uh, I lost three days of life. And when I woke up in that hospital bed... Um, this was the words that came to my mind. This was the first conscious thoughts that I had. I remember going to work on Monday morning. I was building some houses out east. I remember going to that construction site. And then I remember this. You are not your own. You have been bought and paid for with a price. All right, that's God saying, do I have your attention yet? All right. What he did at that time was isolate me for a period of about three years from everybody who had ever been my friend. Why? Terry, you can't handle it. Stay here with me. And that's what he did. Okay, for, so for about three years, the Lord, uh, I, I won't call it my wilderness time because it was not a time of chastening, though chastening was in that. I call it when Paul talked about going to Saudi Arabia and being taught by the Lord, that's more of what that time was for me. God pushed my heart to a passion of prayer. And then from that passion of prayer, he pushed me to a passion of the scriptures. Okay, Why? Terry, you're not ready. You're not ready. And then by his grace and mercy, many people have come back into my life. Okay? So he's saying that, the, that what you need to understand, that an idol is nothing, but not everybody can understand that. All right? Their conscience being weak, this idol, this lifestyle that they had before 
would be defiled even though you who are quote-unquote more mature know that this idol is nothing. All right? Which brings us to verses 8 through 13. All right? We know food is not an issue with God. Look what he says here. But food, now this is New American Standard Revised Update Edition, whatever it is, says, but food will not commend us to God. Um, that's a, I'm not sure about that translation there. Uh, it, some translations will say, this food will not present us to God. Do you understand what they're doing with the food? Do I need to re- re- bring that back? That you would take an animal... All right, and you'd cut it into thirds, and it was offered part, one third would be offered to the deity, one third would go to the priest, and you would take some home. All right, and by making that offering to that deity, you would draw closer, and that, that, that deity would have favor on you. So when he uses this word, it will not commend us to God. The, probably the best way to translate that word is draw near to. That, that sacrifice will not draw you nearer to God. Have you ever seen it with people? Uh, I remember the first man that I ever baptized. First man I ever baptized. Okay? Uh, he came up out of the water, and I literally thought the man was going to leave the building upward. Okay? I mean, he's just, wow! And I was like, man, are they all like this? <laughs> I mean, this, this could get dangerous. Uh, you know, somebody could drown or something. But this guy come up out of the water, and he's just, his eyes are about this big around, and he was just, and, I, and it's all the rest of it. And, and um, he was going through some awful stuff in his life, and, and he, he got done, and he says, I've got to give you something. I've got to give you something. And he wrote me a check for $1,000. I'm thinking, why preach? Just baptize. <laughs> I mean, you could do about four of these a week. Live well. <laughs> okay. And, and I had to explain to him, but in his mind, I want to be closer to God. I feel his presence. If I give him a grand, will I get closer? And that was his mindset. Okay. He has since stepped into the presence of the Lord, and I cherished that time that I had with him that he gave me to invest in him. But we have that in our minds, all right, that if I do something that God gets the glory, then I'll get closer to God. Paul is saying food offered to a deity will not get you closer to the deity. How many of us get up in the morning and say, well, I've got to have my little devotion. I've got my little devotional book and I've got my little prayer book and, and I've got my little Bible book and I'm, I'm going to give you my devotional book and my Bible book and I'm going to pray book and God's going to be closer to me. Well, if God is omnipresent, how can he get far from you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It isn't a matter of where did he go? It's a matter of are you listening? You know, I have children. You who have children know this. There are times you've talked to your children and you know they hear not a word you say. Sort of like church on Sunday morning. I can look and say they're not hearing a word I'm saying. But, uh, but, I, but I want you to hear this because he's saying in this text here in verse 8, this offering does not draw me nearer. Okay, basically what he says, read on. He says, we neither are the worse if we eat or better if we eat. You know what he's saying in Terry's vernacular? God could care less what you eat. 
Okay? He could care less what you eat. All right. I want to give a qualifier. Okay? 6.12 of this book says, All things are lawful. All things are permissible. But I shall not be mastered by any. Any would include food. Okay? Because the Bible is definitely against gluttony. It is overindulgence and being wasteful. The Bible is against all of those things. And I'm not going to go through the text. But basically, as our dietary laws, as Christians goes, there's no religious rules. Listen, I see this today. I see people who are saying that in the Garden of Eden, they were vegetarians. And therefore, if I am a vegetarian, I am more spiritual. No, you're not. Why? What you eat does not draw you nearer to God. Well, but, you know, this food will give you this kind of cancer and this food will give... You know what? I've read those researches and it says anything I eat will eventually kill me. I don't understand what... Eat. Give thanks. Why? Eat the stuff that tastes good because it's going to kill you. You know? But the one thing I can guarantee you, none of us are going to get out of this thing alive. All right, so what's the issue? All right? Now, don't everybody run out and start buying quarter pounders of cheese. Well, if you are, let me know and I'll get stock. Okay, but, uh, but what I'm saying is, is that we really need to understand these things. Uh, it, 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 there isn't more spirituality in white meat versus red meat uh, or gravy or anything like that. It just, it, I, we've got to understand this. We do this with a lot of stuff. I watch, we're all guilty of this. Well, I just can't believe you're, well, fine. All right, well, we'll deal with it, all right? Um, We need to understand as Christians something very important, all right? We don't live to eat, okay? When I was in Israel, um, I watched a people who lived based on what they ate and how they ate. Their life was focused around dietary laws. Okay? In Acts chapter 10, uh, God, to prove to you God's not concerned about food, Acts 10, Peter was struggling with this. He was just outside of the city of Joppa. And um, actually, he was at the place now that the Ben Gurion airport is. Um, I just learned that when I was there. I was like, so this is where Peter hung out. Was there all these airplanes around? Anyway. Um, and basically, God gives him a vision. All the foods of the earth come forward. He says, key to note your text, kill, eat, okay, with thanksgiving. God has prepared them all. So uh, in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus himself says, it is not what goes into the man that defiles him. It is what comes out of the man that defiles him. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, everything is to be received with Thanksgiving, contextually, it's eating. If you think about how we are to pray, when the disciples ask the Lord, how do we pray? Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. That would be my daily sustenance. All right, so my life is not to be wrapped up into what I'm going to eat. Okay, verse 8, it doesn't matter. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, better if we do eat. So it doesn't matter. There's no advantages. Okay? 
Now, that is a perfect argument for the people who would say, then I'm going down to the temple and get me a leg of lamb. Okay? Or whatever it is you may choose. I don't have a a problem. God doesn't care. All right? Specifically, God doesn't care. But let me explain something to you. God does care about other children. His other children. Look at verse 9. But take care that this liberty or freedom, you have this knowledge. You know that food is nothing. An idol is nothing. And we all have knowledge. He says you have that. You know that. All right. So take care, you who have this. All right. Take heed that your freedom does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay? Why? God cares about those other children, those weaker children. Somehow, some way, will this decision I'm making, will it cause somebody to stumble? Okay, when you think about a stumbling block, okay, the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. Okay, do you know what that means? To stumbling, a stumbling block? Have you ever walked around when it's really dark and kind of stub your toe and stumble over something? What is the outcome of that? Most of the time it causes you to sin, doesn't it? Huh? Come on, be honest. Come around the corner at night and you're kind of, uh, you know, I spent some time in a hotel these last couple of weeks. You come around the corner trying to go to the bathroom and, oh, <laughs> hallelujah, Lord Jesus, I praise you and praise you, right? That comes out of all of your minds, huh? Right? Yeah, get up, and, you know. All right. So when I think about a stumbling block, immediately when I think about a stumbling block, I'm thinking about something that's going to cause you to sin. Okay, the gospel to the Jew causes him to sin. He rejects Christ. All right, so there's an occasions that I could make a decision or you could make a decision that would literally cause somebody to what? Well, you need to take... No, 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 no. It says not many of you should be teachers because theirs is a... Stricter judgment. Yet, think about this for a second. Who's supposed to make disciples? So every single Christian at some level is what? It's teaching. Teaching. You may not have a a set position for teaching, but you are. All right? You set an example. When you set that example, are you setting it in such a way that a brother or sister could stumble into sin? How do I do that? Go against their conscience. And and I'll deal it. It's, It's right there. See it right there? Will not his conscience, if he is weak, verse 10, okay, their conscience. See, their conscience, in your conscience, that's where you feel guilty. And your conscience is where um, you, you can get bitterness arises. Anger can arise. Uh, strife can come up. It all starts in your conscience. Okay? There are some who, who could get into a situation 
that they can't handle. You've got to understand, meat offered to an idol had numerous steps to it because it was not uncommon to offer that meat to an idol and then start partaking of, of wine and then partaking of the priestesses who would come down every evening to sell themselves for a spiritual experience to get closer to a deity. So if you took a person who's coming out of that lifestyle and they see you eating in a temple, eating a food of that temple that's offered to that priest, to that deity, their mind is going to progress. Their mind is going to progress. All right, where will it progress? To sin. To sin. Okay, the reason God has given that person a closed conscience is to keep them out of that area. He puts little guards on their conscience all over the place. Don't go there. Well, I feel guilty about it, but don't go there. Why? It'll stir something up. I'll give you the illustration of myself again. When I got released from the hospital, God took me for three years and set me aside. He didn't set me aside. I was involved in the church, but I was very limited with the people, with people in general. Why? You can't handle this. Was basically what he's saying. And he put the Holy, literally the guard to a person's conscience, a believer's conscience is the Holy Spirit. All right. So why would I want to push past the Holy Spirit to that person's conscience? This person's conscience is to keep them away from something. They're not ready for this. Don't force that on someone or force them into something that that person is not ready for. Let me ask you a question. If someone were to come up to you, all right, just they just came up to you and conversation. And I want to use this specifically because I want you to think about this for a second. All right. If someone was to come up to you, a a brother or sister in the Lord that you were a a friend with, because I can look at our congregation right now and there's some groups are a little closer than other groups and some ages and just, you know, there's different little friendships that have formed and things like that. Let's say someone in that little group of yours comes up to you and during a conversation, they question your spiritual maturity What's your immediate response? Be honest. What's your immediate response? I will bet the farm that it's negative. Maybe even to the point of how dare you? Why is that? Have you ever wondered? What if it's a person who you have found and uh, you're following them? You are, quote unquote, pattering your life after them. What is your response? What causes that? I know what causes it. I just gave it to you. Your conscience. Your conscience. Your first response will always be, how dare you? 
perhaps, depending on where you're at, you will begin to grab that, ascertain that, and ask the Holy Spirit what's being done here. Okay? What if you do something against that person's conscience? You ever thought about that? Have you ever run into people that you believed couldn't handle it? And yet you took them into a place that they shouldn't have gone? If the Holy Spirit has limited a person's conscience, don't you dare act superior to the Holy Spirit. And force them to do something the Holy Spirit has restricted. Why? Well... I want everybody to understand their freedom in Christ. And this thing that they're into is not against the will of God. It's not a sin. And I want them to experience God's freedom. And they've got this legalistic thing going on. But if God hasn't prepared their conscience to come from that position, you know what you just did? You made them more legalistic. You made them more legalistic. You can't force people into doing things they, are, they feel wrong about. Can't do it. I see this in marriages, some marriages, uh, where one thinks it's okay to do something and the other one doesn't think it's okay. They force the one into that situation and they violate the Holy Spirit's work in that individual, that spouse's conscience can't do that can't do that why is there tension now in that union you bet your sweet bippy it is absolutely why you just did it why well you know it's okay but you know what you don't have the ability to change a person's conscience the holy spirit has that ability there is a reason that god has given them into that position. And you need to respect where they're at. Why? Holy Spirit hasn't brought them in. Watch what happens in verse 10. That stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, okay, here you are, your conscience is clear. Your knowledge is such that I know that the food has been given to me by God, that an idol is absolutely nothing. I've been bought and paid for the price. I shall not be mastered by anything. All right? I have that knowledge. If someone sees me exercising that knowledge, dining at an idol's temple. Okay? Look what happens. Will not his conscience... Okay, this would be the weak one. This is the one who has the Spirit of God guarding their conscience. If his conscience is weak... Be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. Right? They're going to look and they're going to say, Look, that's the person who God used to draw me to Christ, to salvation. I want to be like them. And look, they are, let's use it, they're having a glass of wine. I too. Shall have a glass of wine. Waiter, a bottle. In who now grab this, in whose strength are they now exercising their conscience in? Their own strength. How well did you do when you exercised your conscience and your strength? 
When you make decisions based on your knowledge alone, on your strengths, your talents, your abilities, what did you always get? A raising of the flesh. But when my conscience is exercised and strengthened through who? Spirit of the living God. You know what it's in in Ephesians where he talks about do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. If I'm drunk on wine, who's in control of my conscience? If I'm filled with the Spirit, who's in charge of my conscience? So here you are knowing a glass of wine is nothing. But what if you have a person who comes out of... uh, the partying lifestyle. They drank to get drunk. Why? So that my inhibitions would go out the window and I could just live it up. And they who... let's say, I won't even use it as someone that you were intimately involved with. What if they see you as a Christian doing that? What'd you just do? You gave them the strength of their own conscience to do what? defile their own conscience. To literally raise their flesh against the Spirit of the living God. Look what it says, verse 10. Will not their conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the things, sacrifice to idol? Okay? But I want to look at verse... Do you see how that works? Okay, you see how that works? Excuse me, it could be anything. Okay, this textually, contextually, is dealing with meat offered to idols. Now, I understand that. What would you do if, let's say you're a believer and, and you have a brother or sister, a sibling, okay, who's getting married? Guess where they got married at? In a temple of an idol. Okay, what if you, being a Christian, here is a relative of yours, want to go to your brother or sister's wedding? And you go to that wedding, and you know what's going to be served first after the wedding feast ceremony? Meat offered to that deity. What if a young believer who's just fresh into the sainthood looks over and sees you doing that and says, there's a Christian who's way more mature than I am, They're doing it so I can. Then the next step would be the wine. The next thing would be the inebriation to the immorality. What would you just do? You overrode their conscience. And you put a false hope in their own physical strength that you have through the power of the living God that they have yet to know. All right, look what it says in verse 11. For through your knowledge, through this wisdom that you have, he who is weak, okay? In the New American Standard, it says ruined, all right? Um, I think King James translates it perished. If you were to cross-reference this word uh, in Romans 14, verse 15, it says to hurt them. All right, in Romans 14, verse 20, it says it will give offense to. Uh, the best is uh, I, I harm, but literally, it literally means to place an overwhelming load on them that crushes them. 
okay, that crushes them, right? And, and I, that, I don't know how you get that word in there, but so to ruin, to perish. Perish is not a good translation, King James. Sorry, you who love the King James. That's probably the worst translation. Hurt them, give an offense to them, but it literally means that you just came up and you gave them something to carry that they had absolutely no ability to carry, and all it will do is crush them. Okay? Um, in that, they may fall into sin. They will have a battle in their conscience. All right? And your knowledge, your freedom caused that battle. They will be overcome by what happens. You know what? When that happens, when you, they become overcome by that and they push into sin, you know what one of the responses is? They'll resent God. How could this happen to me? How could I be here if this omnipotent God is he, he who I say serve? Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit then, because of the sin they're in, they will become more and more legalistic. And it all started because... I wanted to help them understand their freedom. I wanted to show them my liberty in Christ. And all you did was bury them with a burden that makes them more legalistic. Listen, a principle. Don't ever violate your conscience or anyone else's. If your conscience feels bad about it and it doesn't feel right, flee it. If you're dealing with a brother or sister and their conscience, and you can tell that you can tell when somebody is uneasy or uncomfortable with something, flee it. Whatever that little voice in your head is saying, listen to it. Don't do it. Okay? Violating is a person's conscience is not a good habit to get into. Alright? It isn't. And I see people, I know it's bothering you, but I'm going to keep doing it. You'll feel better about it if you keep doing it long enough. No, they won't. They're only going to get worse. I think part of the problem, if you take it back and look at verse 1, we all have knowledge. I look at this body of believers, and, and there's a, a, a wide spectrum of biblical understanding in this, this group of people. But how many of us, when we are asked a question, let's say a person comes to seek counsel, how easy it is for us to quickly give counsel instead of listening? I'm bad at it. That's why I have a non-existent counseling business. I don't. That's very, very bad, bad at it. Why? We need to listen more. I need to listen more. Why? If their conscience is struggling with something, I don't care what your theology says. Take them at where they're at. Remember the text that we always like to use? I'm all things to all men. As long as I can go more toward the freedom side, huh? Are you all things to all men if you're willing to go more to the conservative side? Well, no, that's not my calling. Yeah, it is. Why? Am I willing to restrict myself for the sake of this person? 
Well, but they'll, they just need to grow. I'll help them grow. That's what, what you just do. I'm going to violate their conscience. I'm going to push them into an area that they don't need to be in. Okay? You need to hear where they are before you can know how to guide. You've got to know where they're at. Why? What does knowledge do? <clears throat> knowledge puffs up, makes you a big poof. That's the word. Okay? Knowledge begins with me, and where does it end? With me. So knowledge without love is arrogance. Where does love begin? With you, and where does it end? With you. My love begins in me, and it ends with all of you. But if I truly love you, I will hear where you're at, not violate your conscience, and then take you as the Holy Spirit leads you from that position. Okay? See, I can give you all the gigabytes of information you could ever handle. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't make it real in your life where you can put your faith in hit, then you've got nothing but information. And you'll accomplish nothing. All right? Never start out violating a person's conscience. Why? One of the things we need to do is teach people to obey their conscience. Listen to your conscience. That is the voice of God leading them into areas that he knows that they can handle. He will not... No temptation has seized you except that is common to man. And God is... Faithful. Okay, conscience is God's doorkeeper, is what Charles Spurgeon said. And I like that. He keeps us out of areas that we don't belong in yet. As we mature, okay, understand maturity is not how much Bible I know. All right? As we mature, our conscience gradually opens more and more doors, and we can go into it without stumbling, without falling into something that will defile us. If you have kids, I think about Brandon and Stacy, uh, Lanny and Allie, you have child-proofed your houses, don't you? Got them little plastic things you stuck in all the outlets, cut the little locks on the toilet seats and, and the toilet bowl lids so they don't open up. The cupboards can't, the low cupboards can't go. And you got little covers you put on the oven range tops and all the rest of it. And you, you basically take that infant and, and you say, this is how much room you've got. They got, we got a little gate. So we put it up and you can't get through this gate. And we put a little guardrail around here. You can't go down. The stairs are off limits. We put a, and, right? We all do that, all right? As you get older, what happens? You start giving them a little more freedom, don't you? All right? You'll you take the gate down. Yeah, now you can go into the formal dining room, whatever that is. And, and, and you know, maybe uh, I don't have to put a little lock on my toilet no more because they quit playing in the toilet, so I, I, they don't do that no more. And so, well, I, we, I, we've all, I've had kids. I know what it's like. You know, I use duct tape. And, you know, my wife didn't like that. I said, Doug, it's all right. It'll keep anybody out. But, uh, um, so, but it's just stuff like that. You know, you can take the locks off the cupboards. Isn't that annoying about 2 o'clock in the morning? You want a snack and go up. <clears throat> They've locked me out, right? But you have done this because you have put a boundary for this child. This child grows. And as this child grows, what happens? It starts getting a little more... Freedom. You'll hear conversations that have a lot of, that's hot. Don't. Stop it. Leave it alone. In their conversations. You ever heard parents? Huh? 
Be quiet. Shh. No. Ah. It's everything's negative, 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 negative. Why? Because they're going to that boundary area and they're sticking their little noses over it and you're afraid you're going to get slapped in the face and so you're helping them. You know, we get the, the walls and the crayons are not together. Okay, as they get a little older, you expand the limits. Okay, you know, they, they can go from the glass that has the lid thing on it of their milk to a glass that don't have a lid. Okay, but there's a lot of spooshes that happen between, they're not ready yet. I thought they were ready. They were holding it so good. Okay, uh, so you expand the liberties. You know what I just described to you? That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Take that child of God, set their conscience in an area, and as they start understanding more and more who God is, how God works, and they start seeing God's faithfulness, you start seeing their faith grow, what happens? It gets bigger and bigger, and you can take the little plugs out of the the electric sockets, and you can do stuff like that. That, what I just described to you, it's discipleship. It's discipleship. Verse 18, or when the child gets 18, you kick him out, so there's the world, have at it. No, <laughs> just, <laughs> that's, just kidding. Okay, God confines his children, his spiritual child, his spiritual babies, spiritual infants by their conscience. Little by little, he expands that. Maturity comes, God brings to, to expand that conscience, and in that, he allows uh, that person to grow. Now listen, he will do it through instruction. It's, Lo, I am with you always, teach, you know, or go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Teaching. Teaching. And then as you teach it, they will experience it. All right? And then that's why you have this, the body dynamic, the fullness of Jesus Christ, which is the church. Why? That helps that individually, helps that person grow. And as they grow, they get more and more mature. Their conscience gets larger and larger, and they start depending more and more on God. All right? So that maturity comes, and it expands, and God is glorified. Okay? If we run ahead of God and we force things, you're only going to make a legalist out of that person. Why? They will resent it. They will become bitter. They will become resentful of God. They will become crushed they will be pushed literally backwards and i hate to say it but i see this all over the churches all over the churches um i had a when i was in on my little excursion i had a sturgis 2004 t-shirt okay and i literally had somebody complain about it So, and I thought it was kind of ironic to be in Ohio and anybody knew what Sturgis was, but I, part of me wanted to question them on Mr. Saint. <laughs> How do you know what Sturgis is? Uh, but, I, but I didn't. And I said, I apologize if I caused offense to you. And I went in and t- took my change my T-shirt. I brought the one out that says, Uzi. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I, Told me not to wear that one, so I got my sniper T-shirt, and they didn't like that one. So I just came out with no shirt there. <laughs> nah, just kidding. All right? But if we run ahead, we're going to cause people to stumble. If you are mature, limit your conscience for their sake. 
Okay, just like a parent limits themselves for the sake of their children. You, I see parents, how many, if you're a parent today, how many times have you limited yourself for the sake of your children? Why? I have liberties as a parent um, that I don't take and use because of the, my children. Why? Same thing in the Christian community. We, we sing, we are the family of God. Okay? We govern our lives on how it affects someone else. Do you hear that? We govern our lives on how it affects someone else. Well, I tell you what, preacher, that sounds like legalism. No, that sounds like verse 11. Verse 11, your knowledge, for through your knowledge, okay, you've all got the knowledge of this now. For your knowledge, he who is weak can be ruined, can be harmed, can be hurt. The brother, look what happened. For whose sake... Christ died. Would you bring harm to a weaker brother for whom Christ died? That's what Paul's saying. Let me ask you a question. How would you treat somebody, be careful now, how would you treat somebody that Jesus died to save? That's basically what Paul is saying. Have you ever asked yourself that? Every one of us in this building have run into legalistic, grouchy old Christians, haven't you? Have you? No, I am that one. (laughs) Right? We've all run into them, the cranky Christians. Okay? What's your response mentally when you deal with those people? Cranky or worse, huh? Did you know Jesus died for their sake? Kind of a drag text, isn't it? Let me tell you a true story. I want you to think about this. This is a true story. I read this a few years ago. A man fell off a seven-story building, construction project. One of his dear friends was walking underneath the building when the man fell off the seventh story. He ran underneath the man, and the man landed on top of him. The guy who fell survived, but it killed the guy who was landed on. The father of the guy who died saving the man who fell from the seventh story supported that young man in every way that he could financially put him through college. He did all the rest of it. And a guy asked him one day, are you doing that because you believe he's taken the place of your son? And I found this fascinating, the statement that the man made after that. He said, no. He said, then why are you supporting this man and, you know, watching after him and making sure he's got everything together and he's doing everything, doing right well? Why? And this is what the man's response was. If that man, if that man meant enough for my son to give his life to save him, he felt how could he do anything but honor his son's love by giving that man everything he could. Interesting picture, isn't it? 
You ever thought about that? People who are around you that Christ died for, how do you treat them? Christ died for them. And if our God's son felt that that person was worth dying for, how must we feel? Is that the mentality that we have towards Christians? You ever thought about that? Look around you right now. Many of the people that are in this room right now make a profession of Jesus Christ. Look at them. I want you to look around. Don't look at me. I'm telling you to look around. You're all looking at me. I said around. That would be left and right or backwards. Okay? Golly. So much for obedience. (laughs) How do you treat those people? This book, 1 Corinthians, is set in your and my personal holiness. Why? Because I want to go next to ministry. And if you guys, if we don't have personal holiness right, we don't have to worry about ministry. Don't have to worry about it. But I look around and I think about this and I think about you. I think about those who are not here. How do we treat them? How do we feel about those people? What is my mentality towards Christians? Because you know what? It was for their sake Christ died. You know what? You may not agree with their view of life, their do's and their don'ts. But he or she is one of whom Christ paid the penalty. He shed his blood for them also. And you and I should treat them as such. There is a beauty in every single child of God. So let me ask you a question. Are you thrilled to limit your freedom? For the love of my brothers and sisters? Are you? No one wants to I'm not thrilled. I'm not thrilled to limit my freedom for my brothers and sisters. If you're not thrilled to limit your brothers and sisters, you definitely are not going to like my next statement. Okay? If Jesus loved them, I want to love them. If Jesus died for them, I will die for them. If Jesus gave his life for them, the least I can do is be conscious of them, conscious of them. How many Christians are you not even conscious with? Look at verse 12. He takes it a step further. Verse 12 bother you. We'll just go on to 13. Never mind. No, just kidding. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, what did you do? I wrote right there, great big yellow. W-O-W. 
You can spell out either way, by the way. Do you know by not taking heed of the brothers or sisters in Christ, you are only sinning against Christ? Why? Believer is one with Christ. When Paul was on the Damascus Road and he had the certificates for arrest for all the saints that he could get his little grubby paws on, and Jesus in the blazing glory looks down upon the Apostle Paul and he says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? Is that what he said? What did he say? Why do you persecute me? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 23, it says that the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ. Wow. How that believer is one with Christ when you do something to harm them, to ruin them, to pressure them, when you overwhelm them with a burden, a load, do you understand that you have sinned against Christ? We've all heard the statement. We've quoted a bunch of times, right? It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck, thrown in the sea and drowned at the bottom than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And we think about the little kids coming to Jesus and that just proves that you've got to have a children's ministry and da-da-da, all the rest of it. Let me give you another text that we miss. This is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, and it says that the... Then, verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, this is the separation of the sheep and goats, those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Every single one of those things listed there is a personal sacrifice of the person given. And the single greatest sacrifice is your time. Watch what he says. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? When did that happen? Verse 40. The king will answer and say, truly, You know what that word is in the Greek? Amen. I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Interesting text. In light of the full counsel of God, isn't it? How I treat a Christian is how I treat Christ. Did you know that? 
These are principles, brothers and sisters, to govern our gray areas. Why? I, I gave this verse to you earlier, but I'll just wrap it up again. Why? If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. If my Sturgis t-shirt causes you to stumble, I'll wear it inside out. Because <laughs> I have freedom in Christ. <laughs> You'll learn it, and then I'll start wearing it right side out. You ever thought about that? How will it affect my weaker brother? Will it cause me to cause them to sin, because then I am sinning against Christ. Holding one another up. Listen, no Christian has the right to indulge in anything that offends another Christian. Because you're offending Christ. We all have knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing. And we know that food is not an issue with God. Every single one of you who have been through all of this knows this emphatically now. But in that knowledge, will you immerse it in love? Because the saints of God are the saints of God. And we wouldn't want to do anything to offend Christ, would we? Why would we do something to offend a child of Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I praise you for the power that you use it in my life. And Father, the amazing things that you showed me. Lord, I pray that my precious brothers and sisters, Lord, that they cherish this. Father, they draw upon this. And that, Father, that those that would be encouraged, Lord, would jump with joy. Father, those who would be troubled... Father, would lay that trouble at the foot of your throne. Father, those who are weak would be strengthened. Father, those who are strengthened would strive to strengthen others. And then, Father, that we who are gathered here this glorious day would look to your people, to look to your children and know that you died for them. Father, that we would listen more to their conscience. Father, be willing to walk them by the hand to help them grow into the image, be conformed to you and you alone. Father, let us do this in your strength. Let us do this in your wisdom. Let us do this in your power and your majesty. Father, I again thank you for your bride, your church. Father, what she means to me. Father, may my passion for your bride, may my love that you have poured in my heart only grow with every breath you grace me for your bride. That, Father, I may present her a pure chaste virgin, holy and acceptable to you. Father, may that be the heart of your children. Come quickly, my Lord. Amen.